If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 is where we are going to be this morning. While you're turning there, I don't know how many of you read this book. Maybe it was read to you as a child, or maybe you read it to your children. It's a book called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Have you read that book? If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. It's all about how Life is a bunch of dominoes, and if you do one thing, the next thing's going to happen. It's just going to be a domino falling so that the next thing happens, the next thing. It begins, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk, and when you give him milk, he's probably going to ask for a straw, and then when he's finished, he's probably going to ask for a napkin, and he's going to want to look in the mirror to make sure that he doesn't have any crumbs on his face or a milk mustache, and when he looks in the mirror, he's going to see a hair, and when he sees the hair, he's going to want scissors to cut the hair, and then when he cuts the hair, he's going to want to clean up the mess that he's made, and when he cleans up the mess he's made, he's going to be tired, so he's going to take a nap, and when he takes a nap, he's going to ask you to read him a, a book, and as you read him a book, he's going to want to look at the pictures, and as you look at the pictures, he's going to want to draw the pictures, and as he draws the picture, he's going to want it taped up on the refrigerator, and as he sees the refrigerator and he's exhausted, he's going to say, do you have a glass of milk? And at the end, he says, if you give a Uh, a mouse a glass of milk, then he's going to want a cookie to go with it. So it's just a a perfect story of just how one thing leads to another. The reality is things have consequences. Life has consequences. There are things that we do that bring about other things. Sometimes there are things that we would expect, circumstances that we would expect. Sometimes there are things that we would not expect. And I believe that this section of Jonah will help inform our understanding of what we can expect When we walk headlong into sin, I want us to see this morning three consequences of sin, three effects that sin has upon us and upon those around us. So let's read this section. For the sake of time, I'm going to, I wanted to read the whole chapter, but I'll just read the section that we will be studying this morning, which is verses 4 through 10. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up or literally shatter. And the sailors became afraid. Every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let's cast lots so we can learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us now on whose account this calamity struck us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because Jonah had told them. God, we do pray, just as Casey prayed, that you would open our eyes to see, to behold wonderful things from your law. God, I pray this morning that you would use your word as it goes forth, both in this moment and then beyond as people would come back and watch this. I pray that you would use your word in several different ways. Number one, God, I pray that you would use it to keep us from sin. That's what your word is for. Your word 
tells us that whoever hides it in his heart that we could not or may not sin against you, we, we know that this book keeps us from sin or sin will keep us from this book. So God, I pray that you would enable us as we listen that your word would keep us from sin. Not even just serious sin where we're falling off the edge and making a shipwreck of our faith, but the little sins that lead up to that. God, may this sermon be used by you to wake us up, to wake those who are listening up, who need to be woken up to the reality of the consequences of sin. And God, I pray for those that are in the midst of what we are going to be looking at this morning, that you would prick their conscience, that you would give them understanding and show them themselves in the midst of these storms, that they would see the effects and the consequences that are going on in their own life because of their sin, and that you would use it to turn them to you, that they would not be like Jonah, that they would repent. Even now, they would turn to you now, knowing that they can't outrun you and they can't outrun the consequences of what they've done. And God, I pray for all of us that we would see at the end of this message that you are still pursuing. That sin has devastating consequences, but the ultimate punishment of our sin can be thrown upon Christ. Not because we deserve it, but because you and your grace have given us a way to escape the wrath that is to come. So Father, be pleased as we stare at your Son. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Christ. And God, I pray that you would make us very aware of the devastating consequences of sin, such that we would hate sin all the more today because of our time in Jonah. I believe that's what Jonah would want us to take away from this time together in his book. He would want us to see, don't be like him. Learn and wake up now and repent. Pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Three consequences of sin, three effects of sin. Number one, sin makes us senseless. Sin makes us senseless. And I use that word very specifically because not only does it dull our senses to what's going on, but it makes us dumb. It makes us foolish. So it not only dulls our perception and our sensitivity to things around us and our senses to what's going on around us, but it dulls even our intellect and our understanding. We see this in verse three. So we have to go back one verse in verse three to see Jonah is senseless in trying to run away from God. We saw that last week. He's thinking that he can stop God's purposes. This is as silly and as foolish as an ant standing on a train track, thinking that it can hold up a hand and stop a train from coming at it. This is like my son, Ethan, who loves collecting bugs. You know, uh, those of you who know him know that he loves bugs. He's the bug expert. He saw a praying mantis the other day and he just picks it up and lets it crawl on his hands. He loves bugs. And he decided one day uh, to make a bug collection out of roly-polies. So he made some roly-poly. He picked them up, made a little habitat for the roly-polies. They were all doing their roly-poly thing inside the habitat. And one of them got out. Uh, Jonah would be like this roly-poly trying to run away from Ethan. Right? Doesn't get very far. Ethan can see everything that it's doing and just picks it up and puts it right back. But Jonah, because of his own sin, making him senseless, he thinks that there's a chance that he can make it out of this, that he can run from God's purposes and designs. Sin is the unwillingness to deny yourself and obey God. Sin inherently defies God. It just doesn't want to do what God tells us to do. That's what sin is. Sin ultimately 
is just, I don't want to do what God tells me to do. And often we think of big sins or respectable sins. We think of enormous sins that make a shipwreck of your life. But every little sin, the, the little glances of lust, the little uh, feelings of anxiety, the little selfish and prideful motivation for doing things, those little things that are inward in our hearts, when we act on those and allow those to continue in our lives, we're still defying God. And that will bring about a senselessness, a dulling to our sensitivity, even as we've studied in the conscience book together. Jonah thought he could thwart God's purposes. That can never happen. Jonah also is going to have his senses so dulled that what we'll look at next week, he's just going to say, kill me now. He's so dulled in his own conscience and his own convictions that instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to repent and turn and go to Nineveh, he's going to say, just kill me now. I just want to die. I would rather die than obey God. That's what Jonah is going to say. But God's purposes can never be thwarted. That's why in verse 4, God's going to act. Jonah decides, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, and God's going to decide, you can't get away with this. I'm going to chase you down. All the resistance that we can muster will never reach God's purposes. We'll never ultimately go against God's design. So number one, sin makes us senseless. It makes us unable to see with correct biblical perception, with discernment. But God won't leave us there. That's number two. Sin brings about, this is the second consequence of our sin. Sin brings about sovereign storms. Sin brings about sovereign storms. It not only makes us senseless, but it brings about sovereign storms. This is verse 4 in Jonah chapter 1. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. This is God's answer to Jonah's defiance. By the way, this is God's answer to all sinful defiance. Normally in Hebrew, it's very interesting, normally a Hebrew sentence starts with a verb. It's an action-oriented language. It starts with a verb and then things follow and the nouns follow. This verse starts with Yahweh. Yahweh does this. Jonah thinks he can get away because he's senseless, but Yahweh is in control. And so it begins with Yahweh, not even his action. It begins with who he is. And then it describes what he does. Yahweh hurls hurls. This is the exact same Hebrew word that's used in 1 Samuel 18 verse 11 to speak of Saul hurling his spear at David. You remember that story? Saul hurls a spear at David. What's he trying to do? He's trying to pin David to the wall. That's what God's doing here. He's trying to pin Jonah down. And he does it with such an immense storm that the ship itself is about to break up. There's an interesting personification of the ship here. It's being threatened by God's storm. God sends a storm. He hurls a storm into uh, the boat, around the boat. And the boat kind of seems to have a personification here of wondering, what should I do? Should I side with God and just break up? Should I side with Jonah and the sailors and keep them safe? The boat is obeying God as God is sending this massive storm and it's about to just shatter into oblivion. The boat has more sense than God's prophet to obey God and to do whatever God's telling it to do. God hurls a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm. Very interesting those words in Hebrew for great. We saw that earlier in verse 2 when God tells Jonah to cry out, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. If Jonah refuses to go to the great city, then he's going to have to endure a great storm. 
Mark it and write it down. Every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Now, that's not to say that every difficult thing that comes into our lives is a result of sin. That's the whole point of the book of Job, right? The whole point of the book of Job is to contradict the common belief that good people will have lives that go well and that if your life is going badly, it must be because of your sin. That's the whole point of the book of Job. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. Proverbs tells us this, the way of the transgressor is hard. Every sin that you choose to walk in will bring about difficulty. We know this even in our own lives, right? We can't treat our bodies indifferently and expect to have good, healthy bodies. We can't treat people indifferently and expect to maintain their friendships. There's consequences, natural consequences to life. So too, biblically, there's consequences to our sin. Every act of sin brings about difficulty, brings about a storm. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and assuredly he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 21, verse 7, The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says, Sin sets up strains in the structure of life which can only end in breakdown. Usually this breakdown happens slowly over time. But one of the amazing realities about Jonah is it happens instantly. A storm instantly goes into his life. That's not the norm. Usually these storms are like the effects of radiation in your body, right? Only after you've been exposed and later in your life are you going to experience symptoms. And by then it may be too late. That's normally how life works. But God is giving us a picture here in the book of Jonah of an instantaneous storm to remind us that every act of sin brings about a great and devastating storm. One pastor says it this way, sin is a suicidal action of the will upon itself. It's like taking an addicting drug. At first it may feel wonderful, but every time it gets harder to not do it again. Here's just one example. When you indulge yourself in bitter thoughts, it feels so satisfying to fantasize about payback. But slowly and surely, it will enlarge your capacity for self-pity. It will erode your ability to trust and enjoy relationships and generally drain the happiness out of your daily life. Sin always hardens the conscience, locks you in the prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations, and eats you up slowly from the inside. All sin has a storm attached to it. That's why Numbers 32, verse 23 says that your sin will find you out. Be sure of it, the Lord says. Your sin will find you out. God will send a storm. God will reveal that sin. God will bring about in wonderful, towering grace a storm to to weed out that sin. Storms are grace for believers. For a believer, God uses these storms for our good to bring us to himself. Even though we might not like them, number one, we kind of have to live in the bed that we've made because we have sinned against God and it always brings a storm. But number two, those storms are gracious works of God to wake us up and to call us back to himself. So the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of our sin, but it does teach that for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms can wake us up to truths that otherwise we would never see. Storms can help us develop faith, hope, love, peace, humility, patience, self-control in ways that nothing else could. 
So though God brings storms in because of our sin, God's bringing them in, not for our devastation, but for our good. And I remind us this morning, even as we see God hurling a storm in over Jonah, he's not doing it, delighting in the despair that it will cause Jonah. Write down Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. God says, in all their afflictions, this is speaking of Israel, in all of Israel's afflictions because of their sin and the consequences that come because of their sin, in all of their afflictions, God was afflicted. He weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those who mourn, even in the storm that their own sin caught and brought about. God's not like some chess player that's casually moving pawns along, just I can get rid of you, I can discard you, I don't really have any feelings about any of these pawns. No, God has deep mercy in his heart. We studied this when we were going through uh, our study of the Trinity and really examining that book, Gentle and Lowly. We saw God's heart. It's his strange nature to bring about uh, wrath and punishment. It's, his, it's his, uh, uh, the epitome of his character and his nature to bring about mercy and grace. That's what he loves to do. That's his beautiful, normal character. There's deep mercy inside of these storms. Just think about even here. The sailors will be saved by the end of this storm. The Ninevites will be saved because of this storm. And we have this book because of this storm. None of that would happen if this storm hadn't happened. So sin makes us senseless. Number two, sin brings about sovereign storms. Those storms are both consequence, natural consequence and effects of our sin, but also beautiful, gracious, merciful discipline to wake us up, to grab our attention in the midst of our running away from God and our defiance of his commands and to say, no, stop, turn now before it's too late. Finally, number three, the third consequence of sin is the rest of this section. It's verses five through 10. And it's the reality that sin, number three, sin affects others. Sin affects others. So sin not only makes us senseless, and sin not only brings about sovereign storms, but thirdly and finally for this morning, sin affects others. Look at verse 5. The sailors become afraid. These are experienced sailors. They must, this must have been a terrifying storm. And it makes sense because it's a great storm, a, a great wind and a great storm on the sea. The ship is so terrified that it wants to just break up into pieces. So this is a terrifying storm. Experienced sailors are distraught. But notice right off the bat, Jonah in his sin brings about all of these sailors into the natural consequences, the sovereign storm because of Jonah's sin. We never sin in a vacuum. I think this is one of the biggest things that I've seen in counseling others. People think that there are such things as personal sins that only affect them. It's private, it's hidden, and it doesn't affect anybody else. There's no such thing as sinning in a vacuum. Sin always necessarily affects others, sometimes dramatically so. As we can see in the case here, these sailors would not be in a storm if it wasn't for Jonah's sin. They're terrified. They start crying out to their God, all the different gods that they believe in. They believe in God's uh, the way most pagans believe in gods, there's a god over the volcanoes, there's a god over the, the algae, there's a god over the, the waves, and there's a god over the wind. And so I'm praying to the wind god, and I'm praying to the sea god, and I'm praying to all these different kinds of gods. Obviously, it doesn't work because they're going to have to go talk to Jonah and say, help, help us out because uh, our gods aren't doing anything. They start praying, 
crying out to their God because impending death always has a very unique way of increasing your prayer life. They start praying. And then, middle of verse 5, they throw the cargo, which is in the ship, into the sea to lighten it. Now, this tells us how devastating of a storm this is. We know it's devastating because it's a great storm and God's bringing it. He's hurling it upon Jonah. But just think about these sailors. Their job, the way they make money, is taking cargo from Joppa over to Tarshish. And that's a long journey, 2,500 miles. That's a long journey. And so if they make this long journey over to Tarshish, they're not going to have any cargo to enable them to make money. So they're willing to lose all of this money because they know the only other option is dying. And so we don't want to die. We'd rather go to this new city with no money being made then lose our lives. And so they do. They throw all the cargo into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah, look at Jonah. He goes below into the hold of the ship. He lays down and falls sound asleep. My Bible says sound asleep. And this might be one of the biggest miracles in the book of Jonah, maybe even more than this fish that's going to show up on the scene at the end of this chapter, that in the middle of this storm that is so devastating, Jonah can just sleep. The Septuagint tells us that Jonah, it uses the word for Jonah, snoring. He's snoring. The word used here in the Old Testament is the same word used for God making Adam fall into a deep sleep. You remember that one? He did surgery on Adam, took a rib out of his side to make Eve. So this is a very deep sleep. It's also used in Daniel chapter 9 uh, when Daniel gets a vision and just collapses before God and God has to send an angel to wake him up because he's faints and he collapses as a dead man. And my favorite usage of this word is in Judges. You remember when uh, Sisera falls asleep and Jael drives a tent peg through his head? Uh, that was a deep sleep. Never woke up from that one. That's what Jonah's sleeping right now. He's sleeping this deep sleep. Unbelievers are praying and the believer's sleeping. The one guy who could actually make sense of what's going on because of his theology is asleep in the boat. And my question is why? Some people say he's exhausted, and maybe he is. Why is he sleeping? I love one commentator says he's sleeping the sleep of sorrow. He's in such a depressed state because of his own sin, making him senseless, that he just goes down to the bottom of the boat and doesn't really care what's going to happen. We're going to see that next week, Lord willing. He's just going to say, kill me. I don't really care what happens to me. He's sleeping the sleep of sorrow. I think it would be right to just stop here and ask that question. Are you sleeping the sleep of sorrow? Are you in a place in your own sin where you know you are becoming senseless? You see your despair and your depression in the midst of your running headlong into sin, running away from God. You know that a great storm has been thrown into your life to wake you up, but you're still sleeping the sleep of sorrow. Maybe God in his sovereignty has this message on this morning to awaken your eyes and, and, and your heart and your affections to see the end of this sin does not end well. Would you turn from sin today and trust in Christ? Repent, do whatever it takes, take radical action so that you would not sleep the sleep of sorrow, but you would rest in joyful submission to Jesus. Verse 6 and the captain approaches Jonah, and he says, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up and call on your God. So obviously them calling on their gods wasn't working, so they have to go talk to Jonah. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we're not going to perish. So each man, verse 7, says to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we can learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. 
very interesting in verse 6, before they move to casting lots, verse 6, they say the word, the captain says, get up and call, which are the exact same Hebrew words as verse 2, arise and go and cry out. The same words, get up and call, arise and cry out. Same words. The command given to Jonah by the captain is identical to the command that God gave to Jonah at the beginning. Imagine waking up like that to the same words that you've been trying to run away from. It's like living a nightmare. Jonah knows he's in trouble. He knows he's running away from God and God is not letting him go. Jonah doesn't pray. And then in verse 7, they have to cast lots, which tells us that Jonah also does not share. He does not say, this is the problem. This is why the storm's happening. Because the soldiers or the, the sailors have to say, wait, who, who has done this? What's gone on such that this storm is happening? They give him an opportunity, call upon your God so that maybe we can be saved by him. He should have stood up right then and said, it's my fault. I'm the reason that this storm is happening. I repent. Let's turn and go back. I need to go to Nineveh or else none of us are going to survive. But instead he covers it up. He hides it. Remember God sent Jonah to the pagans to Nineveh. And yet here the pagans in verse 6 are pointing Jonah to God. Verse 7. They turn and they're trying to figure out who has brought this calamity upon themselves. I love that. First we try to lighten the load by ourselves. We can, we can get through this on our own. And then we move to assessing the blame onto others. This is so human, right? We can deal with this ourselves. No, we can't. Whose fault is this? Obviously, Jonah didn't admit his guilt, or else they wouldn't be casting lots to find out. And that obviously means that Jonah's not repentant. Jonah's struggling here. So they cast lots. Come, let us cast lots so that we could learn. Casting lots. This is two dice. You throw them. There's black and white sides to them. If they both turn up white as you throw them in front of some person, they both turn up white, that means they're innocent. You throw them in front of some person, they both turn up black, that means that person's guilty. You throw them and it's a white and a black, that means we gotta have a do-over, as long as it takes. So they throw the lots, they cast the lots. We don't know who they cast lots uh, to first. We don't know how long this takes, but they're casting lots in the middle of this massive storm. And finally, the lot falls on Jonah. Two black dots in front of Jonah. And then they say to him, verse 8, and I love this because they internalize the reality that these dice don't really tell them too much. So they also give Jonah an opportunity uh, to tell us what's going on. The lot falls to Jonah. He explains himself because they know that there's a lot of chance going on in these die. But Jonah has to be some form of an outlaw here. Passenger in our cargo ship can't just be a normal person. He's running away, but we don't know from what. What did he do? Did he murder somebody? Is he a thief? I guarantee you, not one of the sailors would have said, you know, I bet he's a runaway prophet. That's what I think he's done. And that's what he's going to have to say. Verse 8, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? These are identity questions. Purpose, place, people. Who are you? What do you do for a living? Who's your God? To ask who are you is to ask whose are you? What controls you? What are you given to? What owns you? They ask him a series of questions, and he answers all of them except for one. He doesn't answer his occupation. Very interesting to note. He does not answer what he does for a living, because a prophet without a word is no prophet at all. And then he also reverses the order here. 
He reverses the order and he puts his people first. He doesn't say, God is my God. He puts his people first in his response. You can see it here. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. He puts people first, then religion, and then what follows. It's interesting that it seems like his ethnicity is more important to him than God. And this is what we talked about a little bit last week, that even his ethnicity might have gotten in the way of him wanting to go to Nineveh in the first place. They're pagan Gentiles. They don't deserve the mercy of God because they're not Jews through and through. But even if it's not ethnic issues, though I do believe we are struggling with that, even in evangelicalism in our our own churches, even if it's not ethnic issues, we do the exact same thing as Jonah. We may sincerely believe that Jesus died for us and that he loves us, but then if you were to be asked, what, what owns you, what controls you, what is life, what's truly living, what are your goals, desires, aspirations, who are you? I think a lot of times believers who love Jesus and know him, put him second to their people, maybe their ethnicity, or their occupation, or their dreams, or their hopes, but Jesus is a distant second. This is an identity question. What is your identity? Jonah doesn't want his identity to be a follower of Yahweh anymore. And any identity based on your own achievements, maybe you say, this is my occupation, this is what I do for a living, this is what I'm known for, this is what I want to be known for. Whatever your identity is, if it's based on your own achievements and performances, it's an insecure identity. You are never sure that you've done enough. That means on the one hand, you can't be honest with yourself about your own flaws because you have to present yourself as flawless in whatever you find your identity in. But it also means that you always need to reinforce it by contrasting yourself with and being hostile to those who are different from you. This is devastating to a church. This is what causes divisions in a church. When somebody places their identity functionally in something other than Jesus, then there can't be functional unity. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I'm known for. This is my job. I've seen this over and over again in ministry where somebody says, this is my job. I serve this way in the church. And when somebody comes along and moves that person out and starts serving in their place, that person has a hard time accepting that. Why? Because that person's identity isn't Jesus. That person's identity is in what they love to do and their performance in doing that. Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. And then he says, I fear the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land, the God of heaven. Jonah probably memorized and understands and knows Psalm 95, verse 5, which says, the sea is God's because it is he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. God made it all. So the sea where none of us want to be anymore, and the dry land where we want to be, God made all of it. But in the middle, he says, I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh. This is so instructive for us. Isn't it ironic that he would say that? I fear God. This is the distance between confessional theology and functional theology. Don't ever think that because your confessional theology is accurate, that your living, therefore, will be holy. Don't confuse theological knowledge and biblical literacy with spiritual maturity. That's why at our church, we press spiritual maturity, not just biblical knowledge. You need the one to help grow the other, but you can have biblical knowledge and be completely spiritually immature. You can have a high level of, no of theological knowledge and be totally spiritually immature. I've met so many people like this that know so much about the Bible, but their functional 
theology completely undoes their confessional theology. It doesn't really matter what we say we believe. If we don't live it out, what we say we believe actually means nothing. This is really bad theology to say, I fear the Lord while you're in a boat that's being broken up by God, sending a storm to break it up because of your sin for running away from him. Good theology doesn't just tell you who God is. Good theology tells you who you are in light of him and redefines everything about you, everything about your affections, your directions, your desires. It defines everything. You don't just think your theology. You live your theology. And right now, the sailors are living a better theology than Jonah is, right? The men in the boat, the sailors in the boat, fear the Lord. Even when he says this, verse 10, the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? Because the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They are terrified at the beginning because the storm's going to break up their boat and they're going to die. And then they're even more afraid when they know Yahweh, the God over all other fake false gods, he's the one in charge of this and you're running away from him they're even more afraid. They're even more frightened because they have a greater functional theology than Jonah does. Jonah says he fears God, but he doesn't. The men say they don't fear God, but they do. And so they say, how could you do this? I love that. How could you do this? That's a rhetorical question. This is what your parents say to you and they can't figure out why you're doing what you're doing. It's not answer how you could be doing this. It's I don't get, right? I don't get what you're doing. How could you be doing this? And now they're even more afraid. They have theologically informed fear. At first it was just naturally informed fear, but now it's theologically informed fear. But all of this points us to the reality that sin always affects others. They would not be in this situation if it hadn't been for Jonah's sin. The sailors are suffering the consequences of Jonah's sin. This is like Achan. You remember Achan? He sins, and the entire nation is defeated at Ai. I wonder how many people were killed, and then they found out that Achan was the reason they were killed because of his private sin. Maybe family members that were killed in their fight against Ai, and they're wondering, why did we lose? And then they find out it was Achan. Achan's the reason my uncle is dead. Achan's the reason my brother's dead. Achan's the reason my dad is dead. This reminds me of 1 Kings 13. I don't know if you remember the story. There's two prophets, an old prophet and a young prophet, a lying prophet and a truthful prophet. The old prophet's a, uh, in 1 Kings 13, the old prophet is a godly man, and God tells him, don't eat uh, or drink until you get to the city. He's going to the city. He meets this younger prophet, and the younger prophet says, oh, God told me something too. He said, you can eat with me. And the old prophet says, okay, I guess God said that. And so he eats with this man, disobeying God's command and direction. And when he leaves, God gives him another prophecy that says, you're not going to make it to that city alive. And he gets eaten by a lion before he gets to the city. What, where, what was the purpose of that younger prophet lying? What was the point in lying to this older prophet? I, have, I see no point in 1 Kings 13 as to why this man would be lying. And yet his silly, senseless lie to this older prophet got this older prophet killed, eaten by a lion. All of our sin always brings about God's storms, sovereign storms, always makes us senseless and always affects others, always. So where do we go from here? We have Jonah in a boat that's breaking up. We have the sailors that are terrified because they know that he's running away from God. 
We're going to end here this morning because I want us to focus on the sailors' response and Jonah's response to the sailors next week, especially in light of communion. I believe it'll be a, a helpful uh, study at the end of Jonah chapter 1. But where do we end? Is there any hope for sinners who are senseless because of their sin, who have great storms in their life because of their sin, and who affect others because of their sin? In conclusion, I believe that we can say biblically, emphatically, and, gr- and with all the grace that God has given us supernaturally, sinners can be delivered by a gracious God. Sinners can be delivered by a gracious God. You have the three points of what sin does. And then if you say, I'm hopeless and I'm helpless and I have no way to be saved, you're in a good place because sinners can be saved by a gracious God. God is so extreme in his grace that he's going to track down even the most ridiculous of sinners like Jonah. He's going to say, you're mine. I'm not giving up on you. When Jonah disobeys, God does not say, fine, I'll get somebody else to do your job. That would have been what I would have said. But God loves Jonah. God has a covenant relationship with Jonah. Jonah is not going to be abandoned by God because God loves Jonah. It would be like if my kids disobey me, which is not an if, it's a when. But when my kids disobey me, do I say, okay, that's fine, I'm done with you. I'm going to take you to an orphanage, I'm going to swap you out with another kid, it's over. No. I hunt them down with grace and I say, hey, I'm a sinner too. We're in the same boat. And God in his kindness has revealed your sin so that you can see it and turn from it. God's grace is already on display in the fact that there's more verses yet to come in Jonah. God rescues people, even those who are running away from him. Usually sends a storm in some capacity. Always a storm is going to come. Always difficulties are going to come. But the unbelievable reality in all of this is that no matter how far you have sinned and are running away from God, you cannot outrun God's grace. And every act in the world, every action that God allows to happen in his sovereignty, God is using to tell you something, to wake you up, to try and get your attention. So can I plead with you this morning, where is God trying to get your attention? Where is he trying to get your attention to remind you that sin is devastating? It makes you senseless. Sin is devastating. It brings great consequences and a storm that gets into your life, but it also brings about uh, bad consequences and affects others around you. Where is God trying to wake you up and get your attention? Would you listen to him this morning? Would you turn from sin? Would you repent? Would you trust in Christ? Would you say, I'm done? I'm done with sin. I believe these three realities as proven in Jonah and everywhere else in the Bible, and I'm done with sin. The beauty of a sinner who repents, a sinner who confesses, a sinner who says, I'm done, I'm going to stop running, is that God in his grace will cover you with kindness, will cover you with mercy, will cover you in his love, and will say, you're mine. You don't have to turn around and make the journey on your own to get back to him. He has followed you all the way there. And he can grab hold of you and love you right where you're at. Don't try to clean yourself up before coming to God. Go to God to be cleaned up. Run to him and live. This is an amazing book full of reversals. There's a jarring mix of, even in these short verses, the ridiculous and the serious. God tells Jonah to arise and go and call out. Jonah arises and goes and goes down and not up. 
Jonah is commanded to call out, literally to preach, and that command is given over and over and over again, but never until, never, Jonah never actually does it until the very end. The captain even uses the same words, call, preach. Pagan sailors are trying to pray and call upon Yahweh, and Yahweh's prophet isn't even praying and calling upon him. The wind obeys, the sailors obey, a fish is going to obey. The one thing that's not obeying in this text is God's prophet. Pagans believe in false gods, territorial gods who own and operate different parts of the world. And Jonah says, God, my God rules everything, and yet he's not calling out to him. Jonah doesn't want pagan Gentiles to get saved, and yet these sailors are going to get saved. God uses difficulties in Jonah's life to bring about their salvation. Showing us yet again, hopelessness is the doorway to hope. There's so many different reversals. Jonah is the problem, but he's also going to be the solution to the problem, as we're going to see next week. But the greatest of all reversals in this book and in the whole Bible is that a sinner running away from God can be hunted down by God with grace to be saved. And we see Jonah is desperate for the mercy of God that he finds so troubling to give to pagans. But that mercy that we're going to see as a thread throughout this whole book is a mercy that can find you today. Maybe it has found you today. Maybe today you would wake up and you would say, I'm done with sin. And the greatest of all reversals is that while you at the same moment are completely sinful, you are more loved than you could possibly imagine by God himself. And he sent his son so that you could be saved. Would you place your trust in Jesus this morning? Would you turn to him and live? Would you follow Christ as your greatest treasure? Let him be your identity, not anything else in life. And may he then receive all the glory as he alone brings storms in your life, shelters you in the midst of storms, and brings you out of them for his glory and for our great and amazing good in this world. Let's pray together.